You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Kosob here. Excited to be joined by Topher Williams, an NLC Montana 2014 fellow. Not sure if I've ever talked to anyone from the Montana chapter. He's also in Denver these days, helping them out there. So excited to hear what's on his mind. Let's get to it. All right, Tover, good to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about the Montana chapter. I know, like I said, very little about it. So what's the kind of profile or breakdown of the fellows who are in the NLC Montana class? Yeah, well, Montana being a special state, it definitely has a special set of fellows. I was a fellow in 2014, as you said. It was founded in 2009 with our first class being in 2010 by a group of uh, local leaders there, state legislators, uh, who really felt like what NLC was doing around the country needed to be in Montana, too. You know, I believe, and I think a lot of folks who founded the Montana chapter believe, that the future of the progressive movement lives in the Rocky Mountain West, even though a lot of those states are seen as these sort of deep red, very conservative places. um, I think that the reality is a little more nuanced than that. And so we were founded because we needed to make sure that like at any other NLC chapter, we had a an opportunity uh, and an organization and a, and a platform for for young progressive politicos to uh, to stand on. So you know, founded in 2010, we've had all different kinds of folks go through it, from campaign people like myself to you know our poli- our friends in the policy arena, our friends in the nonprofit world, folks who started businesses, Native Americans, um, all different kinds of folks. And then is there anything similar that existed like NLC in, in 2010? Was this a, a real pivotal moment for all the progressives that kind of come out of the wilderness together and, hey, look, we have a place we can congregate and, and share like-minded views? Or were there other things going on in terms of other orgs being there for them? Hey, you know, for sure. I would say that at this point, NLC Montana is the longest lasting mm-hmm progressive training group uh, for folks in the state. You know, there are a lot of other leadership groups, but none as specific to progressive leadership as New Leaders Council. Okay. Um, and then I was going to ask you, like when you mentioned that, yeah, the the central part of the country and the, the Rocky Mountain West, if you will, is going to really do so much in terms of being the resistance and, and just being the progressive stronghold in general. Like what issues do you feel like are a little bit different for your folks there as compared to the LA coastal elites out where I am. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, for one thing, uh, the West is changing a lot. You know, I grew up in Boulder, uh, and I now live in Denver after spending, you know, close to a decade in Montana. And I have to tell you, driving between Boulder and Denver as a kid, we would count the cow pastures to keep ourselves occupied. And now there are no cow pastures between Boulder and Denver. It's just suburbs and and malls and and development. Um, so it's changing a lot. So the way that we handle land use is really critical out West. And that extends beyond just the realm of development. You know, wildlife management is really pertinent. You know, if we're developing these areas, where do, you know, birds of prey nest? Where do, where are bison supposed to roam? Where are, you know, elk going to winter. These types of questions become a lot more relevant when there's less land for wildlife to be able to be using. So that's a really big, important uh, issue out here. When we talk about you know issues of conservation, it's difficult to say, talk about those things without talking about the wildfires we have out west. And I know in California, you know, you experience a lot of wildfires out there. Mm-hmm. But 
I think you'd agree explaining what what it's really like to be in the presence of a wildfire to some of our other friends around the country who don't experience that can be difficult. You know, imagine standing right next to a campfire with the smoke blowing into your face for a month. That's what it's like a lot of the time. Um, So those issues are really important. Things like farming and ranching are still really big industries out West. And it's important um, that our leaders nationally recognize that farming and ranching and agriculture is really important. We, so when, I was going to ask, going back a little bit to the to wildfire issue. So when you think of climate change, you usually think of that as a pr- progressive issue and progressive trying to figure out ways to have folks enact policies that will mitigate or reverse the effects of climate change. Is that at least politically an issue that that holds true then in that part of the country? Or is it a more conservative issue where there's still a lot of convincing that climate change is even man-made? Yeah, you know, it would be really interesting to dive into some polling data on that. But I think the, the thing is, is not so much that folks out West don't think of climate change as being an issue. It's that the term climate change has become so politicized that as soon as you say that, everyone just runs into their corner, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of, you know, coming out West to campaign on the topic of climate change, we need to be talking about, you know, wildfires and community mitigation. We need to talk about you know, what happens when our trout streams become so warm that the trout can't spawn and how that impacts our tourism industry for folks like to come out here to go fly fishing. So I think that sim- that reframing the, the conversation around climate change to not, you know, and changing some of that language, I think is, gives us an opportunity to really uh, revisit the issue with folks who maybe didn't think of themselves as climate activists. So then on the issue of, of framing, like what kind of uh, following or, yeah, I guess what, what what kind of crowds were interested in Bernie's message in the campaign versus, say, a more traditional Democratic message that was coming from the Clinton campaign? Like, who who tends to kind of land on that right framing more often than not? You know, well, I would argue that neither of those campaigns okay. <laughs> did a great job of uh, framing that message uh, out west, but. Um, you know, I, I I like this example of of climate change though when we. When, when Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton talks about climate change out West, it's a lot more relevant to focus on those local issues. So, you know, like I said, when, when you have the, the flow of a river changing, how does that impact uh, uh, tourism? How does that impact our, our ability, our, our, our local raft guides to be able to go out and, and do that uh, type of work? Um, is, it changes the conversation, I think. I think that when we try to bring a national message and filter it down into the West, it really doesn't work. We have a fierce independence out West um, that is really, we see ourselves as removed from the coasts. I think a good example is, is in Montana, the concept of our clean air, clean water and wild country polls at something like 85%. It's really, really high. So when we want to talk about these issues, I think it's more important for people like Bernie or Hillary or any kind of progressive candidate to be talking about these issues in that kind of a context. Well, out West, we value our public lands, right? So talking about public lands is a way to talk about conservation in a way without using language like climate change or global warming. Yeah, that makes sense. When we come back, I'll ask over some more questions about life in Denver. Thanks for listening to Zag. We'll be right back.
Yeah, I think Denver's a really interesting example right now, especially because being here in LA, I think a lot of the same things we're going through, you're about to see as the influx of population and a lot of new money and a lot of new building and a lot of new questions then about um, affordable housing, transportation, mobility are, are happening in Denver. Like, What do you feel like is the most pressing top of mind issue for folks as they wrestle with Denver becoming the new hot city? Well, affordability for sure. Okay. Uh, you know, I think 10 years ago, Denver was a really affordable city to live in. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I actually just uh, signed a lease on a new apartment today. Nice. And uh, yeah, and uh, it is phenomenally more expensive than it was five or 10 years ago to live here. So that's a big problem, especially when our cost of living is not keeping up with that. Another interesting thing we have here in Colorado is something called TABOR or the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, which uh, is enshrined in our constitution. And it requires basically the public to vote on any tax increase, period. So the legislature actually doesn't have the power to raise taxes. Only the people have the power to raise taxes by voting. And is it a 50, which, a 50 plus one majority or is it like two thirds? How does the actual vote a, go? It's, I, I believe it's a majority. Okay. And it's a, it sounds great, right? You know, you can't increase taxes without having the people's buy-in. The problem comes is then we struggle to do things like increase weight salaries for teachers mm -hmm. and for public employees. And in a community where you have skyrocketing rents and increasing cost of living, uh, at a much faster rate than many other places in the country, it becomes really difficult for us to retain talent um, and build infrastructure to keep up with that kind of growth. So that's a big issue that we're facing here in Colorado and in Denver. And they're all kind of related to this influx of, of folks. And a lot of them, you know, I got to say, are coming from places like California and LA. They're getting tired of the people out there and they're, they're coming here. Uh, you know, and we're, we're happy to to have new friends moving to our state. But it, I, I have to tell you, Colorado natives are are a rare thing to find these days. So then when you think about changing the reality of affordable housing and affordable options in general, are, is there a strong contingent of people who want to, to, to build more and have a more elegant urban density? Or do you see kind of the same NIMBY lines being drawn where people are trying to preserve the character of neighborhoods or trying to make sure that uh, there's still plenty of places to park and things for cars. What, what kind of uh, kind of on the ground fights are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of culture clash is happening here, and it's happening all over the place. I, I think that 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 maybe not my backyard piece is is really big, especially where I'm from in Boulder, which is a relatively. I grew up in a relatively wealthy community, and you see a lot of uh, uh, folks who say, you know, we support the concept of affordable housing, but we don't want it in our neighborhood, right? So we'd rather tax ourselves to build affordable housing somewhere else mm. than to see that kind of economic investment in our own communities. And to me, as a progressive, that's a big disappointment. Uh, but how do we change those hearts and minds? You know, I think that that's the, the million dollar question, right? I'd be a much more prized consultant if I had the right. answer to that. Yeah, that's what I ask you. So when, when folks uh, come up to you and say, what do you do for a living? What's your usual short answer for that? Yeah, well, it depends on who's asking. Uh, <laughs> I am a digital strategist uh, for campaigns and nonprofits, uh, mostly uh, mostly political campaigns all over the country, not just here in the West, but all over. Uh, we have clients in New York and Michigan and Indiana and Utah and all over the place. Uh, now, when I sit down on an airplane next to folks who, you know, maybe 
I'm judging them as a little more conservative than a lot of my friends. And they ask me what I do. I tell them I'm a dental hygienist and just put my headphones on. It's <laughs> a good plan. In, in terms of the storytelling pieces, have you changed over time about how you feel like there's a right way and the best way to tell stories for campaigns? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's that local piece, right? So when we're out, when we're talking, when I'm when I'm telling a story or when I'm talking, uh, when, when I'm writing something on behalf of a candidate, maybe in a place like Montana, I'll be doing that, you know, clean air, clean water, wild country piece, you know, but when we're writing for a candidate in Florida, it might be a lot more messaging about climate change or, or coastal flooding, right. Or things of that nature. Whereas in some other communities, we may not want to make that the issue that we talk about. Um, so, I think that when we're talking about messaging for political candidates, it is so important to really focus on those local issues. That's what we saw in Connor Lamb's victory in Pennsylvania was his ability to navigate local issues and elevate the local issues of Pennsylvania. Uh, that is what drove people to go vote for him. All of the exit interviews and focus groups that people like me have sat in on and reviewed, all of it shows that people saw Connor Lamb as a more positive candidate who understood local issues much better than his opponent who was trying to talk about national issues. Okay. And so when we have national candidates like a Bernie or a Hillary come through these states, it's really important that they understand the issues that are actually important to those people in those communities and not just bringing this kind of national message, you know, one size fits all campaign to every state across the country because we've seen that that doesn't work. So how much should a candidate talk about Trump? You know, I think it depends on where you're at. Um, if you're in a place where Trump won by a lot of points, I think avoiding that kind of conversation is probably good advice. I think, again, focusing on those local issues, um, you know, and learning how to do that pivot uh, of, you know, I know that uh, that Donald Trump is president. I know he's very popular in this district. Uh, and I really want to make sure that we're focusing on, you know, these issues that are impacting people, whether that's wildlife management or bringing good paying jobs back to the community because they've gone away to other countries or whatever that message is. I think that that's really important. I think that running just against Donald Trump is not a nuanced enough message. And I think that voters see right through that. And then last thing, give us some races to watch or some people to pay attention to in the rest of 2018. Who do you have your eye on as you really feel like will be uh, things to, to, to make sure people should be up to speed about? Yeah, well, gosh, I'm totally biased because I spent a long time in Montana, but the congressional race in Montana is going to be really interesting. Folks have probably heard of uh, Greg Gianforte, who won the right. special election there uh, uh, recently after body, slamming, yeah, after body slamming a Guardian reporter. Um, you know, he actually, what a lot of people don't know is he actually lost his bid for governor just a few months before that to Democratic Governor Steve Bullock, who ran on a platform, by the way, of public lands, cleaner, clean water, and wild country. Uh, you know, the Democrat beat him in that race in 2016 in a state that Trump won by more than 20 points. So there was a ton of voting crossover, like a lot of voters voted for Donald Trump and then went and voted for the Democratic governor. So Gianforte is not a popular figure in that state. So it's going to be really interesting to see if he manages to hang on to that seat. Some of the other ones, you know, some of these places uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, Pennsylvania doesn't have a single woman in their entire congressional uh, 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 group in Washington. And so it'll be really interesting to see there are some really amazing women uh, running for office in Pennsylvania, and they have some pretty tough primaries. It'll be really interesting to see who comes out of those primaries and if they can beat the Rep Republican incumbents. And then some of those, you know, upstate New York seats are going to be really interesting to see what happens there too. Some of these more 
you know, we call them rural, but I'd like to think of them not quite as rural as, as the West. You know, it's interesting places in Montana are still designated as frontier by the federal government. So when we talk about rural east of the Mississippi, it's very, very different from rural west of the Mississippi. But some of those uh, less populated areas uh, where Donald Trump saw a lot of support, I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, see, uh, uh, what happens this November. Yeah. Listen, thanks for hopping on. Thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find all past episodes in iTunes Store, Google Play Store. We're on Spotify now, Stitcher. You name it, you can find it. We'll have more episodes coming next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.